Good morning. We're here with um, Professor um, Christopher Catherwood, um, a acclaimed historian, a prolific writer, um, uh, Winston Churchill Memorial Trust Fellow and a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Um, and um, uh, Professor Catherwood has written many books, um, uh, numerous ones um, regarding Winston Churchill. And we thought we'd just dive right into it. Um, good morning, Professor. Uh, just, just by way of background, if you, if you can, a little bit about your background, personal information, and, and um, let, let the well, listeners hear a little bit more about you. I was educated at Westminster School, which is the school of Westminster Abbey. Uh, actually, it was a school that was, because it was a school of London intelligentsia, they actually had a very quite high Jewish percentage of population, um, usually high numbers of Jewish students. At, at, at Westminster Abbey School. Uh, but the thing is, we were, of course, we were caught for an hour, ten, no, less, 10 minutes walk from the Houses of Parliament, and we were able to go and watch debates. We had the sort of privilege right to jump the queue and watch debates. And so I was brought up very much in the sort of shadow of Houses of Commons and debates. The key thing was that my maternal grandfather, a man called Martin Ryan Jones, um, he was a medical student at St. Bartholomew's College Hospital in London during the... Um, and he trained, and he therefore wasn't in the First World War, the Great War, because he was, he was a doctor. But his idea of fun was to go and listen to debates in the House of Commons. And he was there at the sort of golden age where Churchill, Winston Churchill and David Lloyd George and people like that were, you know, were debating and sparring in the House of Commons. And so he brought, he was fascinated by the history of that time. And so he actually gave me his presence the, the Churchill biography, as, the, as it came out, done by Randolph Churchill after Churchill's death. And so I was brought up in the sort of, to know and love the history of Churchill as a minister before, during the Great War period, um, you know, his first Lord of the Admiralty, and then later on as, as colonial secretary, creating his, what's now the mandates for Palestine and Iraq. And for my grandfather, this was personal because he remembered it. So, so he, he really brought me up to be interested in his, the history of his youthful, his time as a medical student. And therefore, for me, you know, doing the history of the 20th century was an obvious thing. And then when I went to Oxford, I was Oxford undergraduate um, at Balliol College. And one of my special, my special subject was appeasement policy in the second, in the 1930s. And so I got to love the period that my grandfather had enthused me about. And I really never left it. I mean, I've stayed with the 1930s and British history in the 20th century ever since. And so what I do, I'm now, my link with Churchill is a sort of research link. I'm not a teaching fellow there. Um, I've been a bi-fellow twice. Um, So I'm a sort of, you know, I could call myself an emeritus or former bi-fellow. And it means I can... What what is just, just, uh, you know, for the the ones who are not English uh, in the audience, when when you say a bi-fellow, what, 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 what does that mean? Means a non-voting fellow. Um, it's a, it's a uniquely Cambridge term. I don't think even Oxford has it, and it, it basically it means somebody who is attached to the college but doesn't have voting rights on the college council. But it means that I can have free coffee in the senior combination room. Okay. The right to park my car at the college, <laughs> which is, is gold dust because parking in Cambridge is so expensive and the coffee is so expensive, and it means that I have I have a sort of social link. I, I'm entitled to have lunch at the high table with all the fellows. Um, but, but without having to do all the chores um, of administration that a college fellow would have to do. Um, 
And actually, I teach, I mean, I support, use Cambridge for supervised students in British history. Um, but they're not a Churchill, because very few people at Churchill actually do 20th century history, um, because that's not this academic speciality of the college, even though, of course, what they have there is the, the entire Churchill archive, which is, of course, which is the main reason for me to be linked to the college, because uh, Churchill's archives was given um, when he died, and then the, the British people, then through the National Lottery, had to buy the archive from the Churchill family so as to make it its, uh, the property of Churchill College. Although the copyright, the copyright of, the, of Church, Churchill's personal writings are linked with, are with the Churchill family, and everything he wrote officially as Prime Minister or as Colonial Secretary on government-headed paper is what's called Crown copyright, and can be and can be written, and you can quote it as much as you like. Um, mm-hmm. And so, my, but but so my link is it was interesting, but it's also a social link, and it's mainly a college of astronomers and physicists, you know, physicists, engineers molecular biologists, and it was set up in the 1950s by uh, John Tocqueville, who was Churchill's private secretary, with the fantasy idea of it being the MIT of Britain. Now, in fact, MIT of Britain is probably Imperial College London, um, but by statute, two-thirds of Churchill College are scientists. So if you're a historian like me, you're, you're in a small, actually in a small minority, even though the Churchill Archive, this famous private archive in Britain, is, is actually at the college. And, and, and Church, Churchill was a, a, a prolific writer. I, I would assume yeah. that the archives contains um, all of his writings and speeches. Yes. Everything. And of course, you, and you see them. And of course, for my mother, my mother was brought up in London during the Blitz, and especially the V1 and V2 rockets. And when she actually went to see the archives, and she, you would see his speeches done in what's called psalm format. I mean, you know, as if he's doing it in verses. Um, and because she had goosebumps, because of course, you know, she remembers hearing those speeches on the radio. Um, and so, you know, to, to actually see the original for her is was, was really quite amazing. And, you, and you, after a while, you, you sort of get used to it, which is a bit sad, really, because it is quite extraordinary seeing Churchill's archives, because, for example, he did lots of drafts of the same thing. So a lot of his letters that he finally wrote to David Lloyd George when he was creating Palestine and Iraq, for example, what was sent to Lloyd George was actually sometimes the third draft. But because Churchill kept absolutely everything, I mean, even, you know, down to bus tickets and things. Remarkable, remarkable. Revolving. You could see the first draft, the second draft, and then the final draft. You know, and the same with, you know, and it's the same too with his, his history of the Second World War. I mean, it, it was done, what was published was about the third or fourth draft. And there's actually a book um, by... Cambridge historian David Reynolds in Command of History, which actually shows how Churchill would change what he was saying to get it better, or because he suddenly realised he couldn't defend Dwight Eisenhower because Dwight Eisenhower was now President of the United States, you know, and he couldn't really say that he disagreed with him totally about some aspect of the war in 1944 because he didn't want to insult the President, so he toned down what he would originally, what he'd written at the time. So, but, so Churchill actually keeping everything is a goldmine for historians because he did change his mind, and you could see how his thinking evolved. You could see what he really, or basically you could see what he really thought, and then what he ended, then finally what he, what he actually felt he could say subsequently. And he wrote about absolutely everything. I mean, he wrote whether it was anything to do with his government ministry or not. I mean, he wrote about all sorts of things like economic policy or how to deal with, with the Soviet Union, even though he was colonial secretary in charge of the Middle East. You know, I mean, he, he just, if he had a thought, he would write it. And, uh, you know, and that was that was so extraordinary about him, really. 
And he kept, as he kept absolutely everything in sight. And the archive is enormous. Wow. Wow. And I, I, I take it it's, it's visited by, um, you know, historians and, and just regular visitors, tourists, non-historians as well. Oh, it's, yes. It's I mean, treasure it's Cove. A, oh, yes. I mean, sometimes you get huge tours. I mean, people come from literally all over the world to see the archives. And also sometimes you'd, you'd be there and you'd see about three television crews, you know, and, and uh, the director, the wonderful director of the archive, Alan Packwood. Um, who has an encyclopedic knowledge of what's in the archive? Um, he's always being interviewed, so we're all seeing TV cameras, you know, and and, uh, you know, and then sort of, you know, and, and from television stations all over the world. You know, it's not just you know British, but it's it's global. I mean, it's mm. it's fantastic, really. And you get lots of visitors from China, for example. Really? Also, there are the archives of Margaret Thatcher. Um, so that, uh, and these are being slowly opened to the public uh, under the British um, under British law. You can now you can pretty much get towards the end of her premiership uh, and, and of course new archives open every year and of course they all it's absolutely packed with journalists beginning every every new opening season whereas so all the church archives have been open for years i mean they've been open you know, for over 30 years Got it. so so professor what, what, what why why do you consider churchill to be a flawed genius um you know a, a genius you know I guess people understand, um, you know, and, and even those who are non-historians, they look at World War Two and, and, you know, what, what, what Churchill brought, you know, to, to, to the world during that period. Uh, but why a flawed genius? What, what's the thesis oh, behind that? He made mistakes. I mean, he, this is an interesting thing. Um, there was an article a few years ago in a British uh, political journal by um, someone called um, Simon Heffer, and he wrote that Churchill for many people, is an icon. Now, an icon can't do any wrong. An icon never makes mistakes. And, of course, the interesting thing is in the United States, for a lot of people, Churchill is an iconic figure, and therefore you can't admit to his ever having made mistakes. So when I wrote about, um, for example, my book, what's called in America, Churchill's Folly, about how Churchill created Iraq, I mean, basically, one of the things that he was wanting to do was to save money. And so what he wanted to do, he just put three very disparate parts of the former Ottoman Empire together, three vilayets, um, one, the northern being Kurdish, the middle being Sunni, and the, and the southern one being Shia. And one of the extraordinary things when you read in archives, he, he actually asked his colonial officials, what is a Sunni and what is a Shia? Wow. Yeah, I mean, he, had, he had no idea. And for example, in the Second World War, he was an enormous enthusiast. Um, but sometimes his chiefs of staff, who need to screaming screaming bonkers, um, like especially Sir Alan Rook, who was the chief of the Imperial General Staff and chairman of the chief, effectively chairman of the Chief of Staff Committee. I mean, so the Churchill was something he, he always privileged to work with, but Churchill had about 10 brilliant ideas before breakfast, only nine of which, none of which were rubbish, and only one of which was any good. So one of the things I quoted in the book um, was Churchill's decision, quixotic decision, to invade, help the Greeks in 1941. But by helping the Greeks in 1941, one of the things he did was he took troops away from North Africa, and we'd almost conquered North Africa, and we'd almost, you know, we'd, we'd have been able to stop Rommel from landing. But because thousands of British troops were sent to Greece, all of whom were then, most of whom were then captured by the Germans, and if they weren't captured by the Germans in Greece, they were captured by the Germans in Crete, which we also lost, then we lost the momentum in, in North Africa, and it took till 1943, finally, to drive the Germans um, out of North Africa. 
and therefore, and therefore, that in turn had a sort of ricochet effect, because Churchill said, "Well, you can't invade. You know, you you can't actually invade Europe in 1943 if we haven't already got the Germans out of North Africa." And so, the great American plan was to have the invasion have D-Day in 1943. And Churchill said, well, you can't do that. I mean, well, he, well, he prevaricated. He didn't want to upset the, the Americans by saying, oh, no, we're not going to have it. Um, but he, his policies postponed D-Day. Um, and one of the, reasons, the things he did, of course, was Greece. The other thing he did was he didn't really defend Singapore properly because most of the troops um, were actually in North Africa fighting the Germans and the Italians. And so you could say Singapore was therefore left comparatively undefended. And of course, that's something the Australians have never forgotten because it was like Gallipoli all over again because thousands of Australian troops were captured and of course captured by the Japanese in 1942 and therefore treated appallingly badly. You know, and then Churchill had all sorts of ideas about invading um, Vienna, invading Yugoslavia through through mountains in, in um, northern Italy, which of course would have been logistically almost impossible. Um, and again, you know, by, the, by this time, Eisenhower had much greater power and Marshall was on Eisenhower's side. And they just said, I'm sorry, you're not going to do that. It's completely quixotic. So Churchill had all put the 50, I mean, he had 50 ideas before breakfast, but a lot of them worked, of course. I mean, you know, the Mulberry Harbors, uh, which, which were used to, you know, to, you know, in the, in, after the D-Day landings, to be able to ship the ships to land and lots of provisions to land. I mean, that was actually an invention of Churchill's, which he originally thought of during the First World War. And he's also responsible for the first of all for the tank. And it was his encouragement of the tank, firstly as, as first of all in everybody, and then secondly, um, as Minister of Munitions after he came back to power. Um, you know, I mean, it's his idea. I mean, all these sort of weird and wonderful, crazy um, scientific things. He he backed all these rather slightly weird people, and he turned out to be right. So that's why he was a full genius. He actually understood mavericks very well and sometimes of course the mavericks were right you know i mean the classic example being the bombing of the um of the the dam busters the, the, the raid against the um the dams in in germany um which you know completely eccentric scientists doing it but churchill backed it and it was very successful i mean we we breached the dams and set back the german war production by months so this is why he, he's unusual but if you look at him as a person rather than as an icon, he was the man who saved us in 1940. And actually, Gallipoli, his great mistake in 1960, was actually a brilliant idea. But because he was, first of all, the Admiralty, not in charge of the army, they didn't land the army at the same time as the ships, his, his naval ships, battered the um, Ottoman um, in, in, uh, um, fortresses. In, in what, 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 what did he see in 1940? In, in the 30s, and then obviously in, well, in 1940, that well, others that others in the United Kingdom couldn't see. What was well, he that? That Nazism was uniquely evil. I mean, he saw that this was in Germany, and this this was pure evil, and that you can't appease, you can't be nice to Hitler. That, it's, that Hitler's actually an evil person. You don't appease, you know. Some, I mean, Nazism. He called it you know perverted science. You know. But um, he actually realized that, you know, because he, the interesting thing, of course, that we can discuss later, of course, is that Churchill was strongly philo Semitic. And so, of course, he understood, you know, the persecution of the Jews. This wasn't normal Germany. This wasn't Kaiser Wilhelm II Germany. This was Nazi Germany. And, and therefore, what Hitler was doing was, was immoral. 
Not that it's, it's, not that it's wrong, but actually evil. And he understood this. And the other thing he understood was that America was number, was a great world power. And this was, of course, when America was still in isolation. One of the things that was held against Churchill, he was the, he was called a half American adventurer. One of the things he realized in 1940 was only when America comes, when America comes into the war, which nobody was reckoning on at all, um, then, you know, we would, we, we'd win the war. And of course, my mother, as a child, remembers her father saying to her when, when after, after, um, Pearl Harbor, oh, we've won the war now. And of course, Churchill was very unusual in thinking. I mean, Neville Chamberlain thought we could rely on the Americans for only words. He had no faith in America at all. This is the extraordinary thing about looking at it in retrospect, is only Churchill realized the importance of the United States. Nobody else did. And they thought, well, who cares about America? You know, they, they don't count, they don't matter. And, and he also realized that you needed to rearm, that this was a, you know, Hitler was a serious military threat to world peace. And of course, of course, he was absolutely right. Um, and therefore, you know, you needed to beef up the Royal Air Force considerably. You needed to increase the size of our army and, you know, and the Royal Navy. And if you didn't do that, then Hitler could walk all of Europe. And of course, now people are reckoning that now we've seen the Soviet archives, it is possible, or, or no, it's, it's argued about, but it's possible that we could, that by including Stalin in, you know, in the 1938 talks, we would have been in a much stronger position than we would otherwise have been. But also the key thing is that Stalin was so angry about being excluded from the Munich settlement that he realized, well, you know, the Western powers aren't going to do anything. Therefore, well, the only way to deal with this is to do a deal with Hitler. And so the Nazi-Soviet pact in August 1939 is really traceable straight back to the Munich Munich. settlement in 1938, and which Churchill thought was was an unmitigated disaster, and in which he was right. I mean, the Czechs, most people, I think, the Czechs would have fought, and they would have, they they had all, because all their armaments were in the Sudeten areas that we we cheerfully gave to um, Hitler in in October 1938. You know, the Czechs would actually put up a massive struggle and probably a much better struggle than the French did in 1940. And therefore, you know, the war would have been very different in outcome you, you know, than turned out to be the case. And Churchill knew that. I mean, Churchill understood the moral dimension. And being an ex-soldier, he understood the strategic and military dimension. And he, and being half American, he understood the, you know, the global dimension of what America could offer. And those three things were really unique to Churchill. I mean, there's virtually nobody else seen at all. And the tragedy of Churchill, when he was flawed, was that he was ignored in the 1930s. Not because of what he was saying about Hitler so much as they didn't discount what he was saying about Hitler because he was a fanatical opponent of Indian independence. And that was, that was why... The empire. He was, he was stuck on the empire. And on keeping the Raj in Hitler, because he'd served as a young officer in the Northwest Frontier. That's one of his early books about serving, serving India as a young subaltern. And he was fanatically racist towards Gandhi, you know, and towards the whole concept of Indian independence. And because he was therefore regarded as, as a sort of right-wing fossil, when he was right about Hitler, he said, oh, that's just Churchill, he's an old-fashioned reactionary, with no friends. And so, consequently... Um, you know, the, the, the voice crying in the wilderness was ignored for reasons nothing to do with Hitler. He discounted himself, and of course he rather quixotically, romantically, supported Edward VIII, which of course would have been a disaster, as Churchill himself realized in 1940, because as we subsequently discovered, um, Edward VIII was Nazi, so, so you'd have had a Nazi on the throne in 1940 if um, Edward VIII hadn't, 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 hadn't had to abdicate. 
And so, um, so Churchill, you know, this, the sort of a, the imperialist in Churchill and the romantic in Churchill, therefore distracted people from what he was actually saying. And it was only in 1940 when there was no alternative that you know people said, "Oh, he's right." You know, and then of course, you know, Churchill in 1940 happened, and of course, that's that's what um, made him the genius. The genius. He understood. He understood the issues involved in fighting Hitler, that you couldn't surrender, you know, you couldn't surrender to Hitler because Hitler, because of the in, intrinsic evil of the Nazi regime. That's what people, people don't realize. They say, oh, well, you should give Germany a few colonies, you know, this sort of fantasy idea that, you know, Hitler would allow the British Empire to continue.